Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the chat show where we talk about empathy, innovation with the focus on employment. Employment for everyone, inclusive of people with all abilities. We talk to thought leaders, we talk to the industry, leaders from the staffing industry, disability community, and autism community. And we, we talk about how we can create and influence um, the society and, and, and corporations to really create those inclusive culture uh, so that we can promote employment for everyone. Uh, today, my guest is uh, Haley Mose, uh, an attorney, author, advocate, artist, and consultant who is uh, passionate about disability inclusion and neurodiversity. Uh, she became the first openly autistic lawyer in Florida at uh, the age 24. She has taken that passion to help the world be more inclusive and accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, Haley, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. It is truly an honor to be with you. Great, great. So, Ellie, let's start with tell us something about your your journey. I know you have amazing journey, and and I have personally learned a lot as you describe uh, your your thinking and your personal experience. So, tell, let's start with that a little bit. Absolutely. So, I think you started off pretty quickly by mentioning that I'm in my mid to late twenties at this point. So, I'm at a different kind of generation than a lot of folks that enter disability inclusion. I was born after the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I think really gave me a lot of opportunities to pursue my dreams and have access to different spaces, to reasonable accommodations, whether it was at school or employment contexts. I was diagnosed with autism in 1997. Again, the late 90s were a very different time. and. When I was first diagnosed, my parents were mostly told the doom and gloom of autism, that we didn't have the understanding or amount of resources that we do today. My parents were largely told that they would be lucky if I made a friend, if I graduated from high school, if I did end up having a job. And if I did, I would be lucky if it were even minimum wage at the time. So kind of scary stuff to hear about your three-year-old. And fast forward a very long time, my parents did everything they could. My parents enrolled me in speech therapy so I would become verbal, that they had me in occupational therapy. I used to ride horses to help me with my balance and also I just enjoyed it. And I ended up going to law school at the University of Miami after I finished college at UF. I, my undergrad experience was in psychology and in criminal justice, so a little bit of everything. And I realized I wanted to be a lawyer because I like to write, I, write, I like to talk, and whatever I was going to do had to make a difference in other people's lives. That's how I kind of ended up settling on law at that point, is I realized it combined everything that I enjoy. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got to law school. I'm very honest about this. I thought that maybe I would get to work for the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division doing disability rights on the federal level. And I realized I don't think that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to make a tangible difference in an individual person's life, ideally. So after law school and after going viral, I was actually practicing in healthcare litigation. I represented hospitals against insurance companies. And my firm also had a pretty active anti-terrorism practice where I got to represent victims of terror and go after different drug cartels and other terrorist organizations to help 
our clients recoup money and all sorts of really cool stuff. And then I realized again, my passion was still here in the neurodiversity space and making sure that other autistic people and neurodivergent people had access to places like law school to having traditional jobs if that's something they wanted. And right at the beginning of 2020, I started my own business, really doing more speaking, more trainings on disability and neurodiversity, really bringing that personal and professional of having a legal background and personal experience of growing up as a neurodivergent girl and woman during the late 90s and 2000s and really trying to bring all that together so we have a more inclusive and accessible world for anybody who would like to participate in that. That is so amazing. That is so amazing. That's uh, truly your passion and uh, passion for self-advocacy is really admirable because we all know, right, that self-advocacy is so important. And this type of conversation is really mm -hmm. helping us spread that awareness. So for, thank you for the wonderful job. We would love to talk to you offline about, you know, how we can collaborate and, and how we can participate in your mission mm -hmm. and your vision. Uh, so uh, talking about um, as you have lived uh, experience uh, of being a neurodivergent person, mm -hmm. briefly mentioned that, you know, how you have shaped your journey as an attorney, author and speaker. But tell us a little bit about uh, uh, as, a, as an author and speaker, you touched a little bit about your journey as an as a attorney. How about author and speaker? What is how what you have done and, and how you are really um, making an impact? I look at most of what I do, honestly, as being an educator. And most people, I think, believe that educators have to be classroom based. But I think in today's world, educators are anyone who has access to share information that people might not have or be able to learn from. So I look at being a speaker as a form of education that people can access, whether it's through something online like we're doing today, whether it's through a formal conference, whether they're getting professional education credits for it to continue their post-school learning, or they just wanna know more and they're spending time following me on social media. So I think educating is really what I do. And as far as writing, I think writing is also a form of advocacy and education. So a lot of my work has appeared online, which means that most people can read it for free. So I've had work appear in all sorts of newspapers and publications throughout the world. So I've had work appear in places like the Washington Post and Teen Vogue and Bustle and Fast Company. So anybody who wants this information and whether it's about my experiences or even with neurodiversity at work, they can find it. They can have that information. As far as writing books, I just think it's really cool. I'm also a legal researcher, so I still write scholar and publish scholarship about timely issues on the Americans with Disabilities Act and how that influences the legal system and affects disabled people. There's not really enough on the ADA or even how these things impact disabled people beyond just the theoretical of what courts think disability does and doesn't mean. That's kind of a whole other conversation, honestly. But I really see written advocacy as well as speaking at the end of the day, it's really just about education. And it's how do I get to keep using my voice to amplify others? And how do I make it so people who are normally hesitant or afraid of these conversations or might want more information but never had access to it? How do I make sure that they get this information in a way that feels safe, empowering, and makes sense to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and in all this great work you do, how does uh, autism help you or not help you in your views in how you communicate and you go about your day-to-day -day work. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. 
First off, I can't give you the best answer that I would like to because I have no idea what it's like to be neurotypical. I have no idea who I would be if I were neurotypical. I don't know if, how much my communication style would change, how I think things through, or what even I find difficult. I do find the most difficult autism-related challenge, and I think a lot of other neurodivergent friends and comrades can agree to this, especially my friends who also have ADHD, is that executive functioning could be very difficult. So sometimes staying on task, prioritizing, responding to things, that things like that could become very overwhelming and difficult at times. But I do think that having an autistic brain and having that different type of mind makes it so I might see solutions when other people don't. Or I also might in some cases, and I know we talked about empathy a little bit offline earlier too, and especially looking at your wonderful t-shirt today, is that it does make me more empathetic to certain issues. And I think about this a lot because when I was researching my book on neurodiversity for lawyers and other professionals, that's great minds think differently for anyone who's interested, is I got to speak to a coach who specifically works with lawyers who have ADHD. And she mentioned very specifically that a lot of lawyers who do have neurodivergent conditions often feel that they're failures or that they're not right for this work. But what if instead you are the perfect lawyer for a specific client who needs that way of thinking, who you might have a better solution for, or you might be more empathetic to their situation because of the way that you've navigated the world with a brain that works outside of this neurotypical version of normal and I think about that quote, or at least that line of thinking a lot, because it's very true, is that having a different way of thinking, having a brain that works divergently for that matter, makes it so that we might have access to solutions, we might have different ways of approaching something that we might not have thought about. At the end of the day, disability as a whole drives innovation. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to somehow be a part of that. <laughs> Yes, yes. So as you know, Rangam at Rangam, I, I we have a tagline: empathy drives innovation, right? So uh, that empathy uh, helps us uh, look at the the other person in a different way, uh, in a in a right way, so that we can help find the solution. So that's how we are constantly innovating. So <laughs> I wish more lawyers knew that too, because I actually had to research this: is that we are not always the most empathetic bunch because we're very impatient. And also we get frustrated because people come to us at usually a very stressful time in their life, either because of something very good or very bad. <laughs> yeah, but how about this? On that point, how is your legal background, I'm pretty sure, is helping you solve some of the problems and having those conversations uh, with employers and parents? Because I know you do a lot of advocacy work. So how is that education and that angle is, is helping you uh, to do what you do really well. I think that having a legal background, if anything, teaches you how to think critically about different problems and how to not just always look for the solutions, but understand why something is happening. One of the deans at my law school once said that law is the software of society because we were talking about how a lot of neurodivergent folks end up in STEM fields, particularly because there's a lot of focus in recruiting there. And he just went to me, law is the software of society. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's lots of rules. There's lots of things in that nature. So I think when we talk about what a legal background does, I think for me, at least, it helps me think critically. It helps me be a better speaker and writer because you have to be concise. You have to really lay out those arguments. You have to be able to explain something to somebody no matter what. I do think that you learn a different writing style, a different speaking style, even though I was not 
a trial lawyer, which most people think that most lawyers just go to trial every day. I was not a trial lawyer, but I don't think you need to be a trial lawyer in order to be in order to be a great advocate. So I think that at least for me, what I always try to do, especially when it does come to anything that does involve legal, particularly in the disability space, is break it down so any lay person can understand it. You should not need a law degree or a legal background in order to understand what rights you have and how the law affects you on a daily basis. So at least for me, especially when I get to work with employers and HR departments and self-advocates, it's how do we break this down so we don't see the law as something that we have to follow because we're afraid of repercussions. How do we follow it because we realize these policies are in place for a good reason? Mm -hmm. We don't have reasonable accommodations available to people with disabilities so we can punish companies if they don't comply. That's not why these things exist. We don't have handicapped parking or accessible parking in place so we can find people who abuse the spots $250 every time they park there. We have these things in place so that people who are mostly marginalized by our society have access in the first place. How do we come from a place that we explain that these things exist for a good reason and that following them should be empowering, that you're bringing in a whole talent pool, you're giving opportunities to people who deserve to and are rightfully part of our communities. And also that we, at the end of the day, we all know this about disability inclusion, is that it benefits everybody. It benefits disabled people, it benefits our families, it benefits employers, and it benefits the public at large. So everybody benefits from inclusion. And it's really kind of coming at that through legals. Yes, you're required to do this, not because it's the right thing, but look how much it does for you when we do follow mm -hmm. this thing. That it's really not in place as this scary punishment of, oh my gosh, it's a liability. And I know a lot of people will look at me as you're coming from legal, of course you're thinking about the liability. And while yes, that could be true to an extent, I look at it as how do we avoid that? And we do it proactively because when we're proactive, it sets a good example. It's usually good public relations, honestly, for companies, it benefits everybody. Again, access doesn't just benefit disabled people, it benefits anybody who might have a strenuous situation, who might temporarily end up having a disability or who might acquire a disability later in life. If we live long enough and we're lucky, we eventually all acquire disability in some way, shape or form, whether it's us personally through health scares and different health conditions that develop as we get older, or it's somebody we love. So we all end up part of this community. It's the only minority group you can join at any point in your life. So I always try to remind people that this isn't the biggest, scariest, big bad wolf that you're going to encounter. Love it, love it. I love your that uh, message on proactive approach, right? Because mm -hmm. that is so important, and uh, we all do that for everything. When as mm -hmm. a business, as a family, uh, why not for this, right? And mm -hmm. uh, one another couple of things you mentioned. You mentioned briefly talk about talent, and I will get to the the workplace related conversation. But before we get there. Um, um, accommodation you briefly mentioned mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's always it's not easy you know and and uh, it's depend on the environment depend on the universities or college or mm -hmm. the, uh, workplace you are as a neurodivergent student how did you overcome some of those common challenges associated with the accommodation and and other things Oh my gosh, I think that it is very much school dependent. So, and even individual dependent of who's working there. And when we talk about accommodations more broadly, 
I want to send a message to other disabled and neurodivergent people is that whether or not you ask for accommodations or you are eligible to receive them because of a gatekeeping mechanism that might be in place, it doesn't make you any less valid. When I was an undergrad, I did receive accommodations because I thankfully was able to advocate for myself. My family helped me a little bit and I eventually was able to live in a single dorm room. I had them help me pick a roommate because I was very scared to live alone. And when that situation didn't work out, I eventually was able to move out and be on my own. So that was really important to me to have that accommodation to live somewhere that was central to campus, but also that I had that ability to live on my own, especially knowing what would be very difficult for me. I didn't receive academic accommodations because a lot of what was offered was usually something like extra time. And if you don't fall into that kind of bucket of needing extra time as a neurodivergent person, they don't really know how to help you. Is what if you need help socially? What if you need help maybe with note taking or you need visual information when a class is mostly taught with auditory or they aren't recording classes? Like a lot has changed obviously in schools since the pandemic and having not even had online classes in law school, that was never a thing when I was in school. Everything that the only time I ever saw online classes was when I was in college. And I did take them because I was better at that self-paced as long as there was a firm deadline, I was pretty good at following that. And it helped me kind of stay on track of, okay, this is very firm, this is the deadline. I might not have to do some of these interactions that might be very stressful otherwise. But when I was in law school, I wasn't able to get accommodations. I struggled a lot with that because it was very gatekeepy and who is disabled enough? Who has enough paperwork? What if you didn't get accommodations in undergrad? And I think that's really difficult for a lot of folks, especially because as we know, especially with neurodiversity, we have a lot of women, people who are marginalized by gender and people of color who will get identified later in life. And when they don't have that history of accommodation, they often get denied. This is especially true for standardized tests and especially things like the bar exam, where they want to see this longstanding history to prove that you need it and you're not basically gaming the system. And it ultimately impacts an entire group of people. And then you realize that a lot of these systems that currently exist in colleges, universities, and standardized testing are not just ableist, but they're also classist and racist and sexist. And it's really hard to unpack that. And so I think when we talk about for neurodivergent students, a lot of us end up self-accommodating however we can, especially when we're not able to access those traditional channels for whatever the reason we end up having to adapt. And sometimes it's very difficult. So if that's you, I just want you to know all the solidarity and love in the world and you will get through this and hopefully you're able to change the school that you went to for the better. I did end up serving on an alumni working group at my law school for alums and students with disabilities. And honestly, they took a lot of what we were saying to heart. So it was really powerful to see that change can happen. And so much change has happened even since I've been in law school. So that's always something that makes me hopeful. Yeah, that change is the key, right? And um, that change is, even though it is slow and earlier conversation, uh, we talked about that, that change is not instant uh, gratification. Um, and, and one needs to look at the progress as long as, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a progress, long-term, short-term development, which might be slow, but mm -hmm. it's uh, worth wait. So tell us, what, what are your thoughts? Elaborate that because I love that that conversation, how you see and how you appreciate it. You are mm -hmm. appreciating that slow uh, progress. 
Absolutely. I think that we expect a lot of change to be very instantaneous. And especially when we look at this bigger picture, it's very frustrating, especially when we talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act, because people will still say they haven't had enough time to comply. We still hear businesses and leaders say that, that it's too much work and we haven't had enough time to get used to this. And every time someone says we haven't had enough time to get used to the idea of the ADA, I frankly just call BS because I have had enough time to come into this world, to go to school, to go to college, to go to law school, to hold full-time employment. And I'm still younger than this act. You have had plenty of time. 31 years is a long time. You probably have employees or even mid-level management at this point that are in about the same age as the ADA, if you want kind of that perspective. But as far as change taking a while or that it moves too slow and we think it needs to be instant, I always remind people to take little snapshots. So even when I was talking about law school, I graduated three years ago. And I think about what has changed since I graduated. What has changed since I've graduated is that there is a National Disabled Law Students Association, which did not exist when I was in law school that there are different advocacy coalitions, there's different pipeline programs to make sure students with disabilities can enter our profession, that some of the biggest firms in the country have disability employee resource groups, and that was never a thing until I was actually in law schools when they first really started, was probably my first or second year. So when we kind of do this little three, five, 10, 25 year snapshot, we see a lot of change happening pretty quickly. We just think it's gonna be overnight when we snap our fingers. But even think about when I was diagnosed with autism in 1997, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier today too, is look at all the resources we didn't have in the late 90s. Look how much if you go Google autism or you want to hear from autistic adults today, it's not very hard to find that information. Back then, finding some of that information was like looking for a needle in a haystack. So change definitely is happening. And it's just hopefully we're all ready and receptive to it. I think as long as folks at the corporate level and the individual level have open hearts and open minds, it's very doable. Oh, that, that I love it because we have a, this is something which we, it's connected um, and it's very closely connected to what we do at Rangam every day. Talk to our employer partners and, and uh, hey, let me tell you, we have seen those uh, that the slow progress and pros, uh, progresses where, you know, we have seen uh, employee resource group from 300 people within nine months, it went to 3000. So we have seen that we have seen some organizations where there, there are uh, no, the, you know, they didn't have the employee resource group, but now they are very actively working on and, and, and putting together those strategies and those groups, which is really mm -hmm. impacting and which is really making the progress. Um, exactly. Yeah, talking about employers, any thoughts, any suggestions uh, for how employers can do better and build and uh, <laughs> really scale up? Because remember, one of the things which we always talk, you and me, we talked mm -hmm. earlier that, you know, it's not just one or two hires. It's how do we no. create, how do we, tell us a little bit about your, you know, share your thoughts. I have a lot of feelings on this, but I think kind of going off that it's not one or two hires. Not only is it not your... Please don't just hire us to check a box. Most of us are actually really good workers and employees. We're dedicated. We're smart. We have something to contribute. And of course, it benefits your bottom line. So everybody kind of wins there. But I think what employers really need to think about when we have disabled people and neurodivergent people coming in 
is that we're not just looking for jobs, we're looking for careers. What does that mean? What is that distinction really about? What systems do you have in place to retain us so we don't just stay because we're afraid we might not ever get another job? So you want healthy retention. A lot of people stay in jobs, especially people with disabilities, because they are told by society or even when you look at very abysmal employment statistics for people on the autism spectrum in particular, that they're not going to get another job. So people will stay even if they're miserable and they're not growing. How do we make sure we have that healthy retention where people stay because this is a great place to work? and I'm happy, and even if I could get another job, I would choose not to. How do we get to that kind of happy zone? You know what I'm trying to get at? And I think a lot of that does come down to making sure that we have a distinction between job and career, that we have mentorship opportunities. Mentorship is honestly something in my professional career. I am very honest about that. I've always struggled to find good mentors. I've always been able to mentor more people than have ever mentored me. So I've mentored plenty of neurodivergent students, young lawyers who are not that much younger than me usually because I've only been out for three years, but I'll still mentor recent grads or even older lawyers in this reverse mentoring situation where they will figure out that they're neurodivergent or that they're ready to share with their employer or someone that they work with for the first time of how do we even broach that conversation. So I think when we talk about mentoring as a whole for disabled people, we have to realize it's a two-way street. So there are times that I have definitely taught my employers things or even older, more experienced colleagues things. And there are times many of them have taught me. So I think really investing in that mentorship and professional growth, not just having us to check a box, but even ideally, I would love to see the world where we become the ones who are in hiring positions, that we're the ones who are able to manage teams. And of course, I know a lot of my generation is younger, so that might take time for some of us to age up, to have more corporate and work experience to be better managers. But even having us on that pipeline to be able to hit that upper level of work and to have more responsibility rather than, oh, look, this person is here, they are working and we are done. I think that we need to move past that kind of, look, we hit a checkbox, we hired somebody and they're in the door without thinking about that's only the first step. Love it. This is, you know, I was just having a conversation um, yesterday with someone at Rangam Neurodivergent uh, um, of our talent. And uh, in fact, as a mentor, this is exactly what we were talking. How do we build that path, get their buy-in and, and help uh, build their career path. So, but I really love your, your the terminology, healthy retention. Um, mm -hmm. And that healthy retention, one thing which we have, and I have personally experienced that, you know, once this, uh, neurodivergent talent or person, once they feel comfortable, mm -hmm. there are little less possibilities for them to change because, you know, mm -hmm. that's how I am. Now, once I'm comfortable, um, you know, I'm good. Mm -hmm. uh, but that healthy retention is so important and that can be only created by providing that kind of a support system. And Absolutely. It's, science. it's just, as you said, mentorship, mentorship. Is everything, every hard thing that we talk about when we talk about comfort or discomfort, everything can be solved with a conversation. That's all we're doing. Yeah. We're opening a conversation so that everybody can say what they want and what they need. I used to be a litigator, but I consider myself more of a mediator that I can advocate for one side over the other, but I think that everybody should be able to meet in the middle and get along. So I always look at everything as if we just had a conversation where people feel safe and supported, we can get so much done. Yeah, yeah. 
Excellent, excellent. We have few minutes left, so I would love to talk about technology because I know you are passionate about technology and uh, and uh, neurodiversity at work. And we talked. So share some of your thoughts. I don't want to ask just open-ended question. What do you think of technology and how this can be helpful when we talk about diversity and neurodiversity and at workplace? I think it can be both helpful and harmful, which is really a lot to unpack. And in just a couple of minutes, the helpful thing is, of course, the future of remote work. I think it's a wonderful option and should 100% be available as a reasonable accommodation going forward, even as we do have this return to the office or this hybrid model that's eventually going to come into play in a lot of workplaces. Yeah. Because in the before times we used to see when folks would request reasonable accommodation as in work from home, they would be told it's too much of a financial burden, it's impossible, we can't do this, and look how quickly we pivoted. That's basically ableism at its finest. So hopefully going forward when we figure out what new normal is even supposed to mean, I hope that means something better. I hope that we continue to stay with remote work because at least as an option for those who need it and who are able to request that as an accommodation, especially disabled and neurodivergent folks who can really benefit from that environment and that form of structure. The thing that really concerns me, at least today in the hiring landscape, especially for disabled and neurodivergent people, is the ascent of video remote hiring. So you might be familiar with that there's different artificial intelligence programs that will interview candidates and you record it and it analyzes your responses and the way that your body language is before even a hiring manager will see the interview or your resume and how you did. I think that hiring needs to stay largely human. AI is a tool. It is not a replacement for human review. And what we don't always realize about AI and algorithms and machine learning is that these different technologies reflect and sometimes amplify the biases of their creators. Yeah. So that's how oftentimes with these technologies, a lot of neurodivergent people get skipped over even more for employment opportunities. And I'm wondering how that's gonna be addressed in the future because the way that I've seen it addressed is teach neurodivergent people how to interview in a neurotypical way so the system doesn't pick up. No, and that no, doesn't help anybody. I've actually written scholarship on this as it analyzes the ADA, and it should be forthcoming from the University of Denver Law Review in the next couple months. Oh, great! We would love to. <laughs> we would love to read and and learn. Um, and as you rightly said, it's a, a human touch when we talk about interview and mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, neurodiversity. It's so important, and uh, uh, you know, the, in our world, we call this screen in versus screen out yes so technology is screening out mm -hmm. that's how these algorithms are built mm -hmm. so i agree with you but i'm absolutely positive that there are some opportunities um, uh, in the area of ai and machine learning where mm -hmm. we can leverage the technology to open up more doors of opportunities for people uh, neurodivergent talent and people with other disabilities so we uh, as you as we have mentioned earlier we are working on some of those cutting edge technology which will help companies open up more doors of opportunities for uh, people with disabilities and neurodivergent talent but that's a whole different conversation <laughs> and, but i really enjoyed the conversation i wish i was able to continue this conversation <laughs> but thank you thank you so much and thank you for doing the amazing job and your passion and your energy and your your thinking and your leadership, uh, thought leadership. I really, truly admire and appreciate. So 
thank you again for joining us today thank you and uh, thank you everyone we will continue this conversation same time same place next week um talk about empathy innovation and uh, and employment for everyone thank you again take care and uh, have a wonderful remaining of the week and thank you um haley for for joining us today have a wonderful week everybody thank you bye bye